Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. What's going on? You know, take 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 the time out right now and uh and look around you. And and notice notice if you if you see anything that's yellow. Are you picking up any yellows around you? Now, if you're driving, don't do this. Don't <laughs> you know, see if you can see if you can find some reds. You know? Just, just bring it in a little bit. Uh, I'm so glad that you have decided to join me today. Uh, I have uh, an amazing episode. I feel good. I just ate. I just had guitar practice, and uh, I did my morning mobility workout. You have to, you know, I just had Brian Callen on uh, one of the episodes, and he talked about how important it is to get up and get moving so that you can get your body out the way of all the things you want to do, right? Because uh, some of you, some of us have kids, and uh, sometimes the kids want to play or run around, and we can't because we haven't even warmed our body up yet. Kids don't need to be warmed up. They're ready to go. I don't have kids, but I'm just saying, sometimes life demands something physical from you. You can't engage with it uh, with all your your gusto and vitality and, 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 and energy and power because we haven't warmed our body up. We haven't, you know, did some cat cows. If you go on YouTube, there's a million morning mobility uh, exercises that you can you can work on for beginners to uh, intermediate to expert level. But we have to get up. We have to activate our bodies. We have to move our bodies. You know, drink that drink that glass of water in the morning, even if it's for two minutes. I have friends who. Uh, they do their squats in the shower. So even maybe while you're showering, uh, get some movement in. But we got to get that blood circulating, especially now uh, during these times. But uh, but always, always. Uh, but like I said, I'm so happy and grateful that you tuned in again. And uh, and I'm looking at the reviews on iTunes. I, I the love, the response, the support, the messages I'm getting on social media from everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that what, what, what we're doing and, uh, and how we're connecting. So thank you again for being here with us on today's episode uh, of Before You Kill Yourself. We have Laquanda Roberts Buckley. Uh, let's just talk about Laquanda. She, uh, she has 17 years of social service experience. Uh, she is the founder of Healing Black Women, which serves as a safe space designed to encourage and promote all forms of wellness, healing for black women. She is also the chief editor of HealingBlackWomen.com. Currently, she works as a mental health clinician and serves on the board of directors for RPSV. Most recently, she held the position of director of outreach for the National Office of Mental Health America. She is an established nationally recognized speaker and has spoken on various platform panels with entities such as Eventbrite, Human Rights Campaign, Austin Black Pride, Environmental Protection Agency, Council on Social Work, Minority Fellowship Program, Kaiser Permanente, and Entrepreneurs Organizations. So just to name a few, 
today we get into all the things. Part of Laquanda's personal story is that she is managing. You know, I used to say struggling with mental uh, illness or mental health, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna eliminate that word struggling. I, I wanna I wanna change it to managing to remind us that whatever we're going through, it's manageable. We can manage this and and. And when things start to get out of hand, uh, it's, it's because we, we have to figure out uh, our management. We have to improve our management techniques, right? So she's managing bipolar 1 and PTSD. And, and in this episode, we define bipolar 1 uh, versus bipolar 2. And, and she explains those symptoms uh, to us and also takes us through her hospitalization. She was hospitalized twice for suicide attempts. And, and so we talk about that and what that was like, because so many people are afraid to go to a hospital and they don't know what the process is like. And it can, if you've never been, it can, it can, it seems like a very scary uh, experience. And, and uh, it's true. Not, you know, some people do have uh, horror stories of, of the hospitalizations, but for the most part, from the people I've had on, uh, they, they've been of benefit and, and they've helped them to grow. Uh, she talks specifically, we get into specifics as to her wellness plan and her wellness team. That's right. We can't do this ourselves. We need a team. We need a plan. She also talks about being queer. Now, queer is a word that I would have thought was derogatory or I would have never felt uh, comfortable saying that, but it's how she defines herself. And we even uh, discuss what that means. I, I realized just now at the age of 44, with all the things that I know, I, I was like, I don't know what queer is. So she, she clears up that for us. And, uh, and, and she has a daughter. And what are the lessons she's teaching her daughter about mental health? Uh, we talk about how to stop suicidal thoughts. What, what do we do when those thoughts, and I don't mean permanently, but what I mean is how do we catch them? A lot of us, uh, they, they just pop up out of nowhere, um, and it's like, oh, and it catches us off guard. So how do we stop that? We talk about how much the environment factors into your energy and into what you're thinking and how you're feeling. We get into music and media and how to use that to soothe you. We get into a bunch of self-soothing techniques and, and, um, and how to teach your kids, if you have kids, how to teach your kids how to have a voice, right? She, she talks about what she's teaching her daughter, and that's so valuable because a lot of kids and, and a lot of adults who were bullied as kids uh, never said anything never told anyone because you weren't taught how to have a voice. And so we talk about how to raise your kids, how to have a voice, but we also teach you as an adult how to have a voice, how to be your own advocate. So thank you for tuning in again. And uh, if you have not been, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's hop into the episode. All right, so you're in Vir- you're in Virginia right now. Yes, I'm in Virginia right now, Northern Virginia. 
Oh my God. Now I've, I don't think I've ever been to Virginia. The closest I've ever come is North Carolina, maybe. What, what's oh. the climate? What's the climate like out there in Virginia? It's, it's hot. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the nineties. No, nah, I can't it's do in that. The 90s. Yeah, because y'all got here's the problem is y'all got heat, y'all got y'all got mosquitoes too, right? Well, it it depends on where you you are because I'm in the urban area, so you know it only takes me ten minutes to get to DC. So you know it's just a little different. So we're not. I'm not in the country, although I am originally a country girl. Did you grow up on a farm? No, we didn't grow up on a farm. We actually, we grew up um, in a rural area in a small town, around 4,000 people. And we were outside of the quote unquote city limits. So our neighbors, although we didn't have a farm, our neighbors across the street raised pigs. And then our other neighbor raised, um, had, had a hurdle of cows. And then we had massive gardens and there was a watermelon patch down the road. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that was just how we grew up. And we raised chickens as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, so that means that you had, you ate really good as a kid. That's what that sounds we, like to me. We did. We did. We ate really good and really fresh um, food um, as children. We, But that also means we worked because, you know, when that harvest came in, we had to get everything ready to be placed in the freezer for the winter. So, so does that mean like, because, you know, anytime I think about growing up in a country, uh, it's like waking up at 4 a.m. and milking cows and, no, and then no, you walk we, to school, no. none of that? No, no. We took the school bus to school. We were not milking cows. We didn't have cows. So, so, so none of that. But it did mean that, you know, we spent a lot of time together as siblings. We would play and, you know, we were surrounded by trees. So we would play in the forest. And it was it was amazing. Um, and so um, we knew our neighbors very well. They knew us. And so it was a it was a community. It was a real community. So it, it sounds like because you talk about having siblings. How many siblings did you have? I have three sisters and two brothers. Oh, wow. so six of you. Yes, it I is. feel like there was some uh, somebody was wearing somebody else's clothes too much. There was a bunch of that. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't told you about wearing my T-shirt. Like I felt like it was a bunch of that yeah, in the house. Sometimes <laughs> that, that could happen. Um, now, growing up in such a uh, you, you're, you're, you, you have access to the outdoors. Uh, it, you're surrounded by animals, people. You talked about it being a tight knit community uh, and you also struggled with some with bipolar, right? Yes, as as a child, um, probably as young as twelve, I started um, experiencing signs of depression. Um, I was not um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder until I was an adult, um, but I began to experience signs of depression around the age of twelve. Now, what does depression look like in a twelve-year-old? Because sometimes it could it could be other things. But what was that? What were those symptoms like for you? Well, for me, 
me, it became a lot of isolating. Um, I was, even though I was um, a brilliant child and I did exceptional in school, I kept to myself a lot. Um, when other individuals would, you know, be with the classmates, I would always ask the go to the library um, and I would stay in the library and everybody just assumed I was a bookworm. Um, I began to experience a lot of um, negative thoughts about myself physically um, and that that was something that really got me because when I was growing up, you know, everyone around me was developing and I wasn't. I was just a slender young lady. And so, you know, I started um, developing inadequacies and no one knew because I wasn't telling anyone um, what was going on. Um, and so it, it, it all began my sixth grade year um, when I initially started to experiencing signs. It wasn't until around my seventh and eighth grade year that my mother began to notice that something was wrong because I would no longer want to ride the bus at school and she would do little things to try to cheer me up like send me um, balloons to school on Fridays and come and pick me up um, but she began to see um, notice that something was off and also during that time that's when my parents um, were going through a divorce um, so it was um, it was it was it was a lot for a 12 13 year old um, but I, I hit a lot from people I hit a lot from people so it, it, you know if they're going through a divorce when you're about 12 then that means that you were probably on a subconscious level picking up the tension, the separation, even years before that. You know, as kids, we were very uh, observant. Well, it, it was it wasn't even the tension. We grew up in a very um, volatile household. Um, my mother is a um, survivor of domestic violence, and so we witnessed a lot of things that were traumatizing. And, and I remember being in the first grade and going to a teacher um, that knew my family, that went to the church that we went to, and I told her what was happening what was going on in my home and her response to me was if I ever tell anyone then they were going to take me away from my mom and so I never told anyone else about what was happening um, that you know I, we were watching her get beat up on a regular basis so when they got a divorce it was somewhat of a relief because we didn't have to experience and live with that level of of fear in the household wow and you know i i wanna there's there's so much to unpack just in this one thing um one is the the threat of being removed from your mom like uh, the, the bond was so close because, I mean, it sounds like your mom was awesome bringing you balloons and, and even noticing that you're in pain. I think most parents would see their kid isolating or being by themselves and just think that it's just part of the, that. This is what kids do at their age. Like either they're acting out or they're, they're kind of secluding and would kind of ignore it. But your mom uh, was tuned in to how you were feeling. So shouts out 
to her for showing up with balloons and <laughs> picking you up <laughs> from school, right? Um, but the other thing is it also explains when we see uh, adults and uh, abusive relationships. Like, it's, it's hard because a part of you uh, wants the – there's parts of the relationship that we attach to. And sometimes the fear of something else or the fear of the unknown is is so great it may keep you in that abusive relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It's like who am I and what am I going to do if I leave this relationship? Where am I going to live? How am I going to make money? How am I going to support the kids? Those unknowns uh, explains the reason why a lot of women or and men there are men mm-hmm. in abusive, yes, and will men. stay in abusive relationships. So I just I wanted to extrapolate that out from you know how we the fear that kids have and and why kids don't speak up and share, but also why adults don't speak up and share also. Most definitely. You know, my mother, she was a mother of six children. My father was the predominant breadwinner in the household. Um, she didn't, he didn't graduate from high school and neither did she. And in her road and path to actually being able to get out of that cycle is that she went back to school and got her GED. Then she went back to school and became a CNA and she was working at a hospital. And, you know, during the this whole time she was dealing with um, dealing with abuse. Um, and when it came to the divorce, I actually believe that it was my father that had filed for the divorce, ironically. And, you know, but my mom had set herself up in a position to where she could, you know, take over things in the household and be able to maintain the house that we, the home that we had. And so there was a lot of things that she had to learn along the way because she wasn't, um, you know, accustomed to handling certain things. Um, but, you know, she did the best that she could. Wow. I, I love that. Now, when you were diagnosed with depression at 12, uh, did you go to a school counselor and then what I wasn't was the... diagnosed. I wasn't oh. diagnosed with depression at twelve. Oh, what what, what was the? <laughs> no, that that was that was when I first began to experience symptoms oh, of okay. depression at okay. twelve. Okay. When was your first diag your first official diagnosis? My first official diagnosis took place when I was actually in grad school to become a therapist. All right, and then can you talk us through that? Like, what what were the events leading up to that, and then what was the the treatment for that, or, or how how were you managing? That? Sure, I was um, I was in grad school, and I was talking to one of my um, professors who also was a therapist herself, and I was explaining to her some of the stressors that I was dealing with, and she looked at me and she said, you know, good therapists have therapists too, and I was like, yeah, you're right. And so I utilized my campus resources and I went to see a counselor. Um, it was a psychologist, a male psychologist, and we I stayed with him for the duration of that first year. It wasn't a negative experience. At that time, I was not on any medication. But it was a learning experience for me because I was dealing with a lot of 
things that I had tucked away because I had spent so many years in survival mode, just getting from one day to the next. And so it was um, a relief to have a place to just be open and honest about what I was experiencing. Um, but it was it was learning. It, it was learning. And so that was um, the beginning of um, my official mental health treatment. Because even though when I was 15, I attempted suicide, no one um, outside of medical treatment, no one connected me with mental health treatment. Okay, so then let's backtrack a little bit. You you attempt, and we don't want to go into details in terms of how. Yeah, most definitely. But what uh, pulled you out of that, or what saved your life, or what was the, the anchor that, that keeps you still here with us today from that attempt? Um, from that attempt to adulthood where I, you know, at times I experienced ideation is just, you know, it's not, it's just, but I have a, a awesome dynamic support system and I'm a lot more open in expressing how I feel. Um, I'm unapologetic about expressing how I feel. Um, and I have people who are willing to listen to me and actually hear me when I say, I am feeling this way or these are my thoughts. Um, you know, because I've had to call people and I've had to say I am suicidal and, you know, a plan had to be, you know, developed. I was hospitalized in 2000 and the end of 2017 for suicidal ideation. And so, you know, I have learned to vocalize, you know, what I'm experiencing, even if what I'm experiencing is pain. And so I have that person that will come and whose home I can go to if I start to feel unsafe. I call them and they know, okay, come on, you can come over. I have that individual. I have the person who will stay on the phone with me for hours if I need to debrief. You know, I have um, my sisters who have always been very supportive of me for me to say, okay, I need to take a break um, from this and that, and they can make sure my household things are handled while I'm gone. If it, that means I need to go into the hospital for treatment. Now, a lot of so many people are afraid to hospitalize themselves uh, just because a lot of things we see in the media and, and how it's portrayed and they, they lock you up in a straitjacket, drug you up and, and then you, 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 they, you know, you're gone forever. What was your experience like from from check in to check out? Okay, well, I had two several different experiences. Um, my first experience hospital um, being hospitalized in 2010 was very traumatic for me. And it was very traumatic for me because I was also experiencing psychosis at the time. Um, so that experience was <laughs> a whole nother story. But my most recent hospitalization, um, I actually called to, I notified my family. I let them know that I was going to have to go to the hospital. I um, called hospitals based upon what my insurance accepted 
to see if they had any beds available. One was further away. And so while I was on the phone with them, they wanted to call 911 to get someone with me. And they did so. Um, someone showed up to my home and I went to um, a, here we call them a community service board, where I got an evaluation by a psychologist and they made a recommendation for me to try to help me get into a hospital. Um, I got to the hospital. I got um, another assessment. One thing about hospital admissions, there are a lot of assessments and it can be tiring. Um, I got another assessment. I got admitted into the hospital officially, and I went up to the unit. Um, depending on where your hospital is located, behavior health units are locked. Um, the reason, one of the reasons why they're locked is um, why they say they're locked is because it's to keep the, and you're there because you're a danger either to yourself or someone else, and. Um, and it is, the theory is it's supposed to keep you safe. Um, but that's, you know, that's a whole nother argument that I'm not a part of. But being on the, the unit, there are other individuals who are experiencing a mental health crisis as well. So you, you may be there in how the hospital is set up. Um, you may be suicidal and the person a couple of rooms down from you may be actively psychotic. Um, and so for uh, individuals who's not used to that, it can be a, it can be scary for them. And that's just that's just honest. It can be very scary for them. Um, and can you, also, for the listeners, because a, a lot of people don't know what uh, psychosis is and they don't know okay. what a psychotic episode is. So if you, if you okay, could yes. uh, detail that. Yeah, so psychosis um, are, are, psychosis is um, a group of symptoms and they take place in um, um, a variety of ways. One is auditory um, hallucinations, that's hearing voice. Voices. Another is visual hallucinations. That's seeing things that other people cannot see. It's delusional being um, delusions. That is having um, thoughts that certain things are taking place that aren't taking place. Like you believe someone is. Um, you may believe that you're Jesus, for instance. That's a delusion. Um, and also um, being paranoid. People are out to get you. People are following you, things of that nature. So those are just certain things that um, a person experiences when they're experiencing psychosis. I appreciate you clearing that up and sharing that. Um, and so you're, you're, you're in the hospital uh, mm -hmm. People are, are having hallucinations. And now, are there things that can trigger psychotic episodes where we, we're having auditory and visual hallucinations? Every 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 mental health condition has its set of triggers. Um, it really depends on the individual. Um, some individuals may be um, triggered by uh, trauma. Um, and a reminder of that trauma. Um, certain individuals, it could be a negative encounter with someone, and, and it causes them to decompensate. And for but for a lot of individuals, it is a a continuation of decompensating over a period of time. 
where a person may be stable and then maybe they become a little paranoid and think that someone is following them and then they go down a little bit more and they start to believe that they may have superpowers. This is all are all examples, extreme examples. And then they start, you know, seeing people and um, hearing voices that are degrading them. And so those um those are types of types of things. Um, sometimes individuals think, and the media makes it seem like it's this instant thing. Um, but for a lot of people, it is a continuous decompensation over time. That's why we try to work on the prevention t- side of mental health. Um, so that we can, when we notice people beginning to experience certain things, we can intervene before they get to the point where they may need support in the form of hospitalization. I thank you. I, you know, I want to backtrack a little bit. You, you said you have five other siblings. Are any of them, and I, I mean, and not to share, you know, their business specifically, but are any of them struggling with any type of mental health issues also or PTSD or, or are you the the only one because I would imagine if so then you would feel even more lonely as a kid I have had um, siblings who have shared that they have experienced um, some aspect of mental health symptoms so yes I have I, I don't think any of them have experienced it to the degree that I have but they have they have experienced some symptoms and what do you think is the difference between that you think it's just more of like more of like a genetic physiological makeup you know we all have a genetic predisposition to things where uh if you're more empathic uh maybe than some of your other siblings or what do you think uh, accounts for that you know everyone is different you know everyone is different and everyone responds to things differently you have to think about one two people may be in a room and the same thing occurs and they watch the same thing and for one person it's traumatic and for the other person they're fine. And so, you know, how the mind and the brain responds to things is different and then the chemical makeup in an individual's body is different from the next individual. And so you have to take all those factors into, into play. Uh, so I'll, I'll have two other questions. Uh, I mean, I have more than two, but um, one is I, w- I really want to get uh, specifics on your. It sounds like you have a, 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 a specific plan of what to do when uh, you're experiencing suicidal ideations or mm-hmm. uh, any type of mental health struggle. So if we can get that detailed version. And then also while you were hospitalized, what. Uh, what were the modes of treatment, group therapy, individual, and, and what did you learn that you're still applying today? Okay. So a part um, of my my routine, my, my wellness um, plan is, um, first of all, I work on things before I am sick. That's the number one and the, the biggest thing. I take care of myself. I make sure that I sleep. I make sure that I do little things for myself that make me happy. I'm, I'm really big on 
self-care, not the commercialized version of self-care. But, you know, if that means, you know, sitting in my room and meditating, I color, I listen to music, you know, just little things. I take myself out on a a date or, well, now I just order food. But, um, you know, just little things for myself to make me feel good. So that's the first thing. The next thing is my support system. I have identified certain people and approached certain people in my life and assigned them certain roles. Because if you if you identify only one person, that one person is going to be um, overwhelmed. So if I am really, really agitated um, and on the verge of feeling like I'm going to explode or get really angry, I know I can call my sister. If I need someone to physically go to, if I'm experiencing some suicidal um, ideation or or even and this ideation or thoughts, suicidal thoughts, if I start to experience um, thoughts or start to feel really um, down, I have a friend in Maryland um, that I can go to their home and stay with them for the day. And they are usually at home because of what they do for a living. And so I can stay from them with them for the day and I'm safe. I have a friend that if I need to just vent and de-escalate, I can call them and vent. And they're my support system when it comes to the relationships that I, you know, that I would deal with. And so I have that individual. I have my psychologist that I see on a regular basis. Um, and he reminds me, you have the tools in your toolbox to make sure that you're well. Continue to use your tools. I have a psychiatrist and I have my Um, primary care physician. I always tell people, don't leave your primary care physician out of your treatment team. And for me, what that means is if my psychiatrist is booked out for three weeks and I can't get in to see her, then I take my medicine to my, my PCP and he will call the psychiatrist and consult and say, can we raise this or or lower this and change this until she can get in to see you? And, you know, I make, if I need to see my therapist more often, I make more appointments um, based upon what's going on in my life. It's been times where I've had to see either a doctor or my psychologist every day of the week. And we all did that plan to keep me out of the hospital. Because the hospital is the last resort. And so it's really working together as a team and realizing that my wellness isn't something that I do by myself. It's something that I orchestrate and I assign people who are willing to work with me roles and playing and making sure that I maintain my wellness. But this is a group <laughs> group project. <laughs> this, this, is, this is a group of people working together to accomplish something, which is keeping Laquanda well. Uh, first of all, that's a book title, Keeping Laquanda Well. I like that. <laughs> um, but I also love the fact that you said my wellness isn't something I do myself. That's part of the problem that I have with the self-help book section is that it, 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 it reinforces the idea that it's something we have to do ourselves. 
And like you said, your wellness is something that you orchestrate. I love that you're a conductor and you and you need the, the cellist and the flute and the and the oboe and you need all these different players uh, to, to help uh, make this uh, cacophony of, of beautiful sound that keeps you alive and going mm-hmm. and, and, and thriving. So I love that. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a similar thing. I mean, I've gone more of the... Uh, I started a group, uh, a men's group, uh, because I was like, I don't like any of the men's groups that are out there. I was like, I'm going to start my own group. So that's become sort of my outlet. And then I have, uh, I'm taking a bunch of like online classes and, and my teachers don't know that they, my therapist, uh, working as my, (laughs) working as my, (laughs) I'm taking sign language and guitar and Spanish and, and, and those are the things that keep me alive. So, uh, I, I appreciate you sharing your plan. It, it, is saving lives right now. And for the listeners, recognize that it, it, it can all sound overwhelming, right? You're like, I got to get all these things. No, no, no. What she's saying is, is that to think you can do it yourself is preposterous. It requires a group effort, and you can slowly start recruiting your team. Mm-hmm. over time like you you didn't you, yeah, didn't, you didn't wake up with this team on 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 monday right it was no like, i it did took years I, yeah it took it took years to develop a team and for people for individuals who were like oh i had a therapy experience and it was horrible my psychologist i've been with him now for three years however there were six people before him and so, you know, it sometimes it takes time and sometimes you sit in front of someone and you're like, this isn't the person. And that is OK if that's not the person for you. A therapeutic relationship is a therapeutic relationship. It is a relationship, which means you need to be able to sit across from a complete stranger and tell them things that you can't tell anybody else. So it needs to be someone that you can you know, really develop and grow with. And if you don't have that feeling by at least the third session, then there may be a disconnect there or you may need to make a mention of something or ask for a referral. Absolutely. Now, I I, want to peel back the layers a little bit because, like you said, every individual is different. So what does bipolar look like for, for you? Like what? What are your highs and what are your lows? What does what is, what is that look like? So um, there's two types of bipolar disorder. There's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. I um, manage bipolar 1 disorder. And so for me, one of the initial um, symptoms that I experience when I am starting to become unwell is I cannot sleep. I will be up for 72, 96 hours, that's three to four days, and feel like I have all the energy in the world. And another thing is I have a thousand ideas. I believe I can go um, build an airplane. Um, I begin to experience what's called either hypomania or mania. And that is, again, you feel like you have all this energy, you're really hyper for in quotations. Um, you have all these these thoughts, and sometimes the thoughts aren't good thoughts. 
you know, sometimes these thoughts can be very negative and intruding and they just go and go and go. And that symptom is called racing thoughts and they don't stop. And sometimes that's what keeps you up at night. Um, just your thoughts racing. Um, in the past, I have experienced where I was um, hypersexual. And so that means you have this intense desire to like have sex all the time. And um, and it's over like with the average thoughts. It can become very, very um, consuming. So that's the mania side of 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 um the disorder the depressive side of disorder mo- most people can understand and um for me i tend to experience a lot of suicidal ideation um suicidal ideation inability to really care for myself not eating not getting out of the bed not not doing household household chores, not wanting to leave the house, um, struggling to complete tasks or do work. You know, that's what um, that's what I experienced on the depressive side. Um, and then there's one more side because the particular diagnosis I have is um, psychosis comes with um, psychotic features. And so in the past, although I have not experienced these in years, but in the past, it was that um, it was delusions for me, delusions and paranoia. So I thought people were following me. I thought people were out to get me. You know, at one point when I thought I was Jesus. And so you know, those were the the other symptoms that I that I experienced when it came to bipolar disorder. Now, you know, I've talked to people uh, who have bipolar disorder and and they talk about how sometimes music um, can trigger episodes. <laughs> it makes them too excited or too sad, things like that. When, when you said that, you know, music is something that is part of your wellness plan. Uh, is there a specific type? of music or how are you incorporating that? And have you found that music can sometimes trigger uh, feelings or episodes? So um, that's, that's, it's two sides of the coin. So yes and yes. Um, So music, I listen to very, when I need to deescalate, I listen to very calming music. I, I um, listen to chimes. I, I listen to to drums. Um, I listen to tribal music. Um, that really, you know, deescalates me. And you know, when I'm happy, um, you know, I'll listen to some popular music. You know, when I'm driving and I'm on the radio. However, there are songs that can be triggering. You know, I was like the biggest fan of. Bo- Bone Thugs and Harmony. And I love um, Eternal 1999. But I can't listen to that. There's certain songs on there that I cannot listen to because it puts my mind um, and my thoughts in a, a space that feels uncomfortable. And so I can't listen to that if I start to, if I know that I'm upset. 
because I'll start to experiencing, you know, thoughts of, oh, what if I, you know, you know, do this or um, thinking about being in an argument with the person. And so I can't listen to that. If I hear, and it's, and you know, this is sort of common with everyone, you know, if you are experiencing something in relation to a breakup and you guys had a song and you hear the song, you know, it triggers emotions, whether the same thing can be with, you know, someone that's um, dealing with a mental health condition, you know, a song of certain, you know, calibers, if it's too, um, if it has things in it of a negative nature, like a, a breakup or being misunderstood, um, you know, being alone. I avoid that because that doesn't feed into me. Um, it's, it begins to deduct. And so there are certain things that I have to avoid. And that goes with the same thing as far as media is concerned, too. Um, is People may think that it's weird, but it's it's just what I have to do. There are certain things I cannot watch. You know, I, I cannot watch. Um, I did not watch um, 13 Reasons Why. Um, I try not to watch um, things that have obscene violence in it. Um, I, you know, I am very mindful of the things that you know, take away from me and pour into me. And um, it, it's, it's a part of managing. And I don't like to say the word I have bipolar disorder. I have PTSD. I say I manage them. It's a part of managing these conditions and, and with understanding what um, triggers you. It, it is under, it's under, you have, have to understand um, how things affect you um, in order to have an opportunity to have some success at doing this. I, I love that idea of uh, asking yourself, like, what takes away from me and what pours into me? I, uh, I, I'm, I'm very similar in that I've, I've gotten more into instrumental music. Um, sound baths, um, uh, yeah, like yoga type music, and, and like you said, the chimes and the tribal, because it, it, a lot of these songs that sound innocent, you, you listen to the words, and you're like, damn, like that's what you were saying that whole time. Uh, and, and so you, you wonder why it, uh, it affects you in a certain way. Um, I would imagine uh, that and then Growing up and, and seeing what your mom uh, experienced, have relationships been uh, uh, tough to manage? Um, they have not been tough to manage. Um, I would say it was the bigger um, aspect of it being um, tough wasn't really my mental health. It was the fact that I was queer and trying to hide it <laughs> you know that was that was the bigger the bigger thing but it it did in the very beginning I would take it personally when someone set, would say that they could not um, um, see having a future with me because of my mental health conditions because I'm very honest and upfront 
with people. And I had been warned in the past, oh, don't do that. People won't like you. I say, but they need to know. They, I need them to know what they're getting into because if they're going to be with me, they're going to be a support person. And they need to know what that looks like. And they need to know if they can't you know, offer a level of support on this level. And, and if not... I have learned to be okay with that because it's not that they're saying, oh, I don't want to be with you. They're simply saying that I don't think I can support you the way that you need to be supported. And I'm okay with hearing that now. Um, I'm 100% okay with hearing that because, you know, I have a partner now. My partner isn't my main support system. You know, I have a group of people. And he manages, um, he's a veteran, and he manages PTSD. Uh, and so, you know, he has his support system. And so it it became easier. And as I became a mental health advocate um, and working in that space, it became even easier because then I didn't care what um, people thought of me because, you know, it was a much bigger cause. Okay, uh, I'm just realizing I have no idea what queer means. Can you and you identify? And I don't know if I've ever met somebody who identified as queer. Can you can you break that down and how that separates from lesbian or gay? It you know um, there is a there's there's queerness for me and i'm gonna say for me um queerness for me is really based upon the individual who's defining that they're queer you know it's almost like they're not saying that they are a lesbian they're not saying that they're bisexual and for me i'm not saying that i'm a lesbian i'm not saying that i'm bisexual i'm saying that i'm attracted to a spectrum of individuals that is not ruled by you know what's binary it's not ruled by um gender or if an individual is done binary that's what queerness is for me so um, being being queer is is for me. I always say being queer is based upon how that individual is defining it for themselves. Because for for me personally, it just it just means there aren't any limitations on upon what I am attracted to, and not to say what but who. You just always a free agent. I got you. I feel you. All right. <laughs> Now, earlier you talked about how also part of your, your wellness program was being able to express yourself. You, you know, you talked about when you were a kid, you, you, didn't, you didn't say much, you isolated, and, and now you've learned to, to speak up and share your voice. And uh, I feel like a lot of people try to do that. They try to speak up. They want to express their needs, but uh, they don't know quite how. How to ask for what they need. How do you ask for your... First of all, how do you get clear on what you need? I think a lot of people don't even know what they need. Um, and then how do you express that? And before you even answer that, I, I want to give you an example. My... Uh, and and I, I'm sure that people who've listened to the podcast have heard this example. Like one day, my girlfriend, I came home and she was like, where were you? And I, I was I was like, ah, oh, blah, blah, blah. 
But for some reason, that question bothered me, and I couldn't figure out why that bothered me. And then I realized, instead of her saying, I missed you, she said, where were you? Right? Like, she, there was a different way for her to, she, she, instead of coming at it through her emotion and, and being vulnerable and saying what she, what she needed, like, she was just like, I missed you. Uh, you know, I, I was worried about you. She was like, where were you? So it felt accusatory instead of caring, instead of nurturing, right? And so I think when a lot of people have a hard time sharing what they really need because they don't even know themselves what they need and then how to express that. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, do you, how do you do that? Uh, self-inventory. Um, we, you know, we remember we go to the grocery store and we buy based upon what we looked in the cabinet and realized wasn't there. Um, you need to do the same thing with yourself. Um, simply look, list the things that you feel that you need more support on and or look at the areas that you feel like you have um, support in and describe and write down by yourself with nobody else there what you feel like you need to improve the things that um, are lower on the list. And then think about who in your life can help you with that. Think about what in your life can help you with that. And if there isn't anyone then you need to start looking at outside sources. Those outside sources don't automatically have to be a therapist. They can be a group. They can be so it can be social media. It can be um and then it can lead up to a therapist if that's what you if that's what you need. It can be a psychiatrist if that's what you need. And you hear me saying the word if because Everyone's path is different. What works for Laquanda may not work for you at all. And so you have to sit down and do a self-inventory about what is best for you and what will make things better and then start developing your plan from there. Because if you haven't identified what you you need by yourself, then you can't ask other people for it. So do a self-inventory. And it doesn't have to be this big, long thing. You can just start with three things, three things that you notice and then identify possible, you know, look at who's around you, what's around you, and then outside sources that can all help improve those three things. I love that. I appreciate you you sharing that. It's, It's always so important to start with like what you, I like that analogy too of, uh, you go and shopping, and first you check your cupboards to see what you're missing and what you need, and then what is it that you you want? Like like what you trying to make some cupcakes, and you ain't you ain't got all the ingredients. Um, so so thank you for sharing that. When uh, you said you've been working with your current therapist now for three years, mm-hmm. have there been any strategies, tactics, tools that he's given you that you use, like an acronym or a way of journaling or you know, like something specific that's applicable uh, for the listeners out there? So it's very different. Um, my therapist and I, my psychologist and I have an um, interesting relationship because I'm a mental health clinician myself. And so a 
lot of things, you know, the things he learned in school, I learned in school. And so what he does for me is he reminds me of what I already know. And I would say for anyone that's dealing with something, there are things that you do know. You have been through things before. This time, we just want structures in place so it doesn't have to be as difficult as it was in the past. You know, I had two hospitalizations. Um, The first and the second were like night and day. The first one, I lost everything. I couldn't live by myself. I couldn't um, take care of myself. I couldn't work. I could no longer take care of my daughter. The second one, I maintained my job, my place to stay. You know, I didn't lose anything. So you in this journey, and these are journeys, you may experience, you know, symptoms again. Don't beat yourself up because I was doing everything I was supposed to do to make sure that I was well, and I still got sick. This is an illness. These are illnesses. So you're still, you you still may get sick and that's, you know, that's okay. But the goal is the next time you get sick, you know, it won't be as difficult as it was the previous, you know, the previous time. And so it's always, you know, building upon what you've already learned about yourself. I love that. You're right. It's one of the reasons why I keep a journal is because I realize a lot of the lessons that I'm learning, I forget. And so I have to write it down. And then when, I, when I'm feeling unmanned or, or like I'm struggling, I'll flip back through the journal. I'll be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we've been here before. Mm-hmm. And here's how we mm-hmm. handle it. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like uh, when, you, when you get bloated a little bit and you're like, damn, what did I do? And then if you keep a food journal... You can go back and be like, oh, yeah, I mm-hmm. forgot that this food causes bloating. Um, you said you have a, a daughter. What are the lessons? How old is she? And then what are the lessons or ideas or, or things you're trying to instill in your daughter uh, in, in, in terms of just life in general uh, regarding mental health, life, relationships, all those things? Okay. Well, she's 14. Um, one thing I did when she was very young, um, when she was eight, around eight, I told her, I, I said, because she couldn't understand um, the concept of a psychiatric hospital. And I had to tell her, I said, the reason why you stay with your father is because mommy got really sick and she had to go to a special hospital for sad people. And she understood that. Um And so for my daughter, I am open with her about, um, you know, what I experienced. There's certain things she doesn't want to hear. And I respect that. And that's appropriate because, you know, she's still 14. However, you know, she's aware of my diagnosis. She's aware that I take medication. And with her, I try to help her and teach her how to communicate we do not teach our children how to communicate. We don't teach them how to have a voice enough so that when they are affected by certain things, then they will say something. And it, wouldn't, it, it doesn't matter um, who that person is. 
I remember one day I was at the um, grocery store with her. We were checking out and I had said something to her and I guess my tone was off. And she looked at me and she said, when you talk to me like that, she said, it hurts me to my core. And I looked at her and I saw her face and she was so genuine. And so I first thing I did was I apologized because like it wasn't my intention to hurt your feelings. However, these are my expectations. I all you know, a part of me is if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong where I make a mistake, I apologize to her. I apologize. If I falsely accused her or if um, I came at her a certain way and I think about it, I was like, no, they can have some repercussions down the line. I'm going and I'm going to apologize to her because she needs to see an adult knowing and respecting her emotions and feelings. And if anything, I want her to feel like her emotions and feelings are valid. And I am attempting to groom her to speak how she feels emotionally and be okay with that. I love that. And and I know that you said, uh, you know, because you're a therapist now, but you work primarily with black women? Um, as a, no, as a therapist, I work with all individuals um, because of where I, um, similar to my last hospitalization where I went to a community service board where I got an assessment, I now do that type of work. Um, and so I work with anyone in the um, in the community that is experiencing um, a crisis. And I generally tend to work with individuals who are experiencing suicidal ideation, maybe experiencing um, thoughts of self-harm, um, who are experiencing psychosis, degrees of psychosis, or experiencing, you know, thoughts of um, maybe some physical aggression or things like that. You know, I you know I had another therapist on and uh, we were talking about, you know, the contributing factors to uh, someone wanting to end their life. And, you know, they talk about hopelessness and uh, loneliness and also feeling like a burden. But she, she in terms of uh, what actually prompts someone to, to, to act on it, she was like impulsivity is not talked uh, enough about. Uh, can you talk to us about impulsivity and then how do we reduce impulsivity in ourselves? Impulsivity is, you know, that that notion that, you know, it is it's, it's something that's happening instant. This instant thought comes. You don't know why this thought is coming. And so you auto, you automatically start to experience those those ideations and so a part of that is first of all your team needs to know that that's what you're dealing with it is so important that you are able to share with someone that these thoughts are are instant that's one thing that i ask an individual when i'm speaking with them who may be presenting with um, suicidal ideation i ask are these thoughts just automatically popping up or is this something that's been happening over time and you know when someone says okay these thoughts are just popping up i don't know why they're happening I'm just going through my day and then all of a sudden I'm having these thoughts, you know, that's something that we want to um, begin to work on and start doing some um, 
some um, stop, excuse me, some thought stopping exercise, you know, thought stopping exercises. And when we want to begin to walk ourselves back from those thoughts and, and call them out as what they are. It's like, oh, I'm starting to have these thoughts again. It's like, is this really your plan? And I ask an individuals, like, is that what you, because there's a difference between having thoughts of doing something and having a plan to do something. Those are two totally different incidents. And so if a person is experiencing thoughts, then, you know, we can, we can talk about, okay, when you're experiencing thoughts, what, what is the action plan? What is your action plan when you start to have these thoughts? Who are you going to call? Where are you going to go? Is it safe for you to be at home by yourself? If it's not, where can you go? If you don't have friends and family, you know, can you go on a drive? Does that make you feel better? What relaxes you? Um, Do you need to be around people? Do you need to listen to music? Because that drowns out the thoughts. What are those coping skills that we need to kick in? And depending on the degree, you know, a lot of people want to step away from the concept of medication. But if this is an ongoing process, we, you know, we want to say, okay, let's, let's just have a conversation with a, with a doctor and see, you know, how we can, you know, make this a multifaceted approach. Um, Because sometimes people want to pick and, and people, People can pick and choose approaches, um, and but for some of us, that approach may include medication, and it's not—it's not an easy, it's not always an easy thing to accept um, when it comes to mental health because we internally feel like we should be strong enough to handle certain things, and so we have to deal with that process that we need a little more assistance than the next person. I appreciate you sharing that. When, when people say they want to end their life, what is it that they really want primarily? It's, it's, it's different for each individual. It's, it's, it's different for each individual that sits across from me. It's different from each individual I've ever been on the phone with. Um, and, you know, sometimes they want, uh, sometimes the individual using myself, I want, I wanted the pain that I was experiencing, you know, when I was a child to stop because I was being bullied. You know, I was like, I wanted that to stop. As an adult, um, I was exhausted. And I was like, I want these racing thoughts to stop. I don't, I don't want to deal with them anymore. You know, and so it, it differs from each end for um, each individual. Can you give us one more thought stopping exercise? Um, I like to um, for myself personally, I like to change um, the sensory, the feel of what's going on with my body, because I try to um, remember that my body is, you know, and mind are very much connected. So if I start to experience um, certain negative thoughts, I'll go do something like I have a box um, that I had a box that I would fill with sand and I would take my shoes off and I would rub my feet in the sand to give to, you know, to begin to distract myself or I'll go run my feet in some very cool water um, to distract myself. I will um, use 
infused um, essential oils in a diffuser to to begin to change the mood of the things around me. Because remember, um, this doesn't matter if you have a mental health condition or not. Your environment affects you. Your environment can affect your mood just as an individual Regardless, if you go to work and you have a stressful day at work and it's chaotic at work, when you come home, you might not necessarily, it may be difficult for you to um, wind down. So I always try to look at my environment as well. Um, I personally keep lights low in my in my home to lower the level of stimulation. And I, if I'm having certain thoughts and I know that they're going on, I will watch. Um, I have strategic shows that I watch that I know, going back to that planning, that self-inventory, I know they make my mood. Um, they, they they make me happy. They change my mood for the positive. Oh, you got to so, tell me what the shows are. I mean, you can't just be like, I watch <laughs> one, shows that one, make me feel one good. Is, and then, one is got- Bob's Burgers. <laughs> I am absolutely obsessed with Bob's Burgers. Um, a lot of it is animation. I am a big uh, Japanese anime um, buff along with my daughter. And so, so I watch a lot of um, Japanese anime. Um, and right now, another just a little um, show, I watch a lot of nature documentaries. I, that Those give me so much peace to watch animals in their natural habitat. Um, and Dr. Pole, the incredible Dr. Pole on Disney Plus. I love, I love that as well. So, you know, those. Those are my go-tos when I need to shift my mood and zone the world out. But if you're dealing with thoughts, um, things that will get your brain stimulated in another in another way, is there an, an app on the um, on your phone? Like I would play um, solitaire on my phone because that takes my thoughts um, and it focus, focuses them on an activity. Or I will also, what else do I do? I play solitaire. I will play pet rescue saga. Um, You know, things that are challenging for the mind to get the brain going in another direction. And so, you know, it's sometimes it's about moving your mind to another space. But I always like to do that in the... um, in the umbrella of what's keeping me safe in that moment. I love that. I just recently started doing crossword puzzles. They got these mini crossword puzzles Mm -hmm. on my cell phone, and they're they're challenging enough to engage my brain, but easy enough for me to complete it uh, while I'm eating breakfast. So you're you're right. And I I I find myself watching cartoons too. Say it again. I take them to work. In, In my work backpack... Um, and another thing, everything that I use for work, I keep in the closet so I don't see it at all. I disassociate <laughs> from that. But in my work backpack, I have a, a adult coloring book. I have pencil colors and I have crossword puzzles that I take with me every time I go to work. Uh, so if uh, I need to deescalate, yeah. I sit and I take my five or 10 minutes and I color something or I do my puzzle. I, I love that. And it's so, it's so funny because uh, a lot of the things that we say kids should do, for some reason, as adults, we think we shouldn't need it. You know, it's and because I, I find myself watching cartoons now. Also, I, 
You know, mm-hmm. I love watching uh, YouTube has wonderful, like short uh, animated films mm-hmm. uh, that I love. And then, like you said, the, the documentaries uh, on nature and then even a cooking documentary, Chef's Table mm-hmm. on Netflix, uh, a phenomenal just watching people uh, create something and achieve something uh, is is a beautiful thing. And then. Uh, but sometimes, like you said, because I, I love to travel and I miss it right now, I'll, I'll watch a, uh, like a 4K drone shot video of New Zealand. And uh, it just makes me feel like I'm there. Um, and I don't know. Have you discovered slow TV? No, I haven't discovered All slow right, TV. So slow TV is uh, you type it in, into YouTube. And what they do is they'll put like a camera on the front of a train going cross country. And you're literally, it's just literal footage of the train. And it's not edited. There's no music, no nothing. It's just it's just the vantage point of the front of the train going, you know, from like, uh, uh, you know, Russia to France or something like that. So it'd be like three hours. Or uh, they'll just have a camera on some dude fishing uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And... <laughs> It's soothing. Or there's, there's, there is this one where this guy walks around uh, cities like New York, Chicago, and he has a camera attached to his uh, chest, and it's just him walking through the different cities. There's no, he's not talking. He's not interacting. He's just literally, and it's just something very soothing about uh, watching. They call it slow TV. Like, they have fireplaces and things like that. So, uh. Uh, is there anything, Laquanda, that we haven't talked about uh, regarding uh, mental health strategies or techniques or just thoughts or, or things that have popped up where you're like, you know, more people should be doing this or just ways we can take I, I, better care know, of ourselves? I, I, always, I always say one of the biggest ways to deal with, um, you know, the, the S word stigma when it comes to mental health is that, you know, we have to get more individuals to normalize it and to who can and who are comfortable with it to speak out about it and to not just share stories, but to also become a part of um, the mental health professional field. Um, It, people are, can be relieved when and they know that there's individuals out there who experience certain things and they're in the field trying to make it better. Um, and so we, for me, I feel like we always need more mental health advocates instead, especially in the African-American community. Um, we always need um, individuals who are paying attention, paying attention to the policies that are in place so that um we can improve services across the board for um, and experiences, not just services, but experiences when someone is dealing with um, mental health concerns and they need support. You know, uh, because that's it's, it's not treatment is support. You know, we have to understand we have to understand what that really means. Last question uh, and ask this of all my guests because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Laquanda? 
I may not know your exact situation, but I know exactly what that moment feels like. I know the pain, the anguish, and wanting to feel like you can't take it anymore. But what I would say to you right now is don't. I may not know your name. I may never see your face. But I know that everything about you matters. You are a wonderful, dynamic person, regardless of the people around you and what they think. And there are a tribe of people who are willing to support you in the way that you need and deserve to be supported. You can always reach out for help. You can text home to 741741. You can text start to 678678 if you're a youth, um, a LGBTQ um Plus youth, you can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call the Trevor Project. There are people who don't even know you who are willing to support you and walk with you along this journey. Laquanda, thank you so much for sharing that. Please plug all your things. Where can people find you, get in touch with you, social media, all that stuff? Yes, so you can always find me on Instagram. Instagram in two places at Laquanda's Heart or at Healing Black Women. You can also find us on our website, healingblackwomen.com. Thank you so much, Laquanda. Thank you so much, listeners. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you taking action, for you slowly building your support system. You cannot do it yourself. We cannot do it ourselves. We need a team. Jordan had a team. That's why he was one of the greatest. So call the 800 suicide number, call 273 talk. Uh, You can reach out to the Trevor project. All those numbers are listed in the show notes. Every episode there's, you can call, you can text There are group numbers, there are international numbers. There's someone who wants to hear your story and someone who can guide you through where you are to where you want to be. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com to work uh, with yours truly one-on-one. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Laquanda. Thank you.